This is Linda Belcher, and you're listening to Everything Fab 4 on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. There were so many just ultimately cool things about it, like George Harrison broke a string during Nowhere Man. Um, Mal Evans brought the bass drum out on stage, and the whole place came unglued, you know, just to see Mal because everyone already knew who Mal was, you know. John Lennon chewed gum the whole time on stage, and they were wearing the dark green, forest green suits, and just all kinds of super cool stuff like that, that, like, how do you come down from something like that? Well, I don't think you do. Today's guest is Ann Wilson, an American singer and songwriter. She rose to fame alongside her younger sister, guitarist Nancy Wilson, as lead vocalist in the rock band Heart. Raised near Seattle, Washington, in the suburb of Bellevue, Wilson began singing and playing music as a teenager. During college, she formed the band Heart, the first hard rock group fronted by women. In their heyday, Heart released numerous albums throughout the 1970s and 80s, including Dreamboat Annie, Little Queen, and Dog and Butterfly, which generated such hit singles as Magic Man, Crazy on You, Barracuda, Straight On, and Dog and Butterfly. The band later enjoyed commercial success with a trio of albums, including the self-titled Heart, Bad Animals, and Brigade, along with a raft of hits such as What About Love, Never, These Dreams, Nothing At All, Who Will You Run To, Alone, and All I Want To Do Is Make Love To You. To date, Heart has sold over 35 million records. Over the years, Wilson has earned her place as one of rock's most vaunted singers. And Wilson was ranked number 78 in Hit Parader's 2006 list of greatest heavy metal vocalists of all time. Wilson possesses a lyric soprano vocal range, and she is known for her operatic abilities and banshee screams. In 2013, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Heart. Wilson has released three solo albums over the years, including Hope and Glory, Immortal, and most recently, Fierce Bliss which she has launched a solo tour to critical acclaim. Welcome, Ann Wilson. Uh, there's nothing I like more than discussing the Beatles. So, Oh, well, get ready then. But first, I must confess something to you. When I was in college at Texas A&M in the 1980s, I once skipped econ class to go buy heart tickets. Oh, <laughs> you, skipped, you skipped that highly interesting... Riveting class? Wow. 
Yeah, I, kn- I know it was an error, but I have to say I love the show. It was down in Houston at uh, the former site of Astroworld, and uh, you guys were wonderful, of course. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot. And and you definitely outplayed Econ. I can I can promise you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so before we talk about the Beatles, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about uh, how this how this all started. What was your first taste of of music uh, that that got you you going and thinking about perhaps having a career as a singer? Well, uh, I think my mother had a lot to do with it. She always played music in the house, and it was artists like. Judy Garland and Edie Gourmet and Ray Charles and Nina Simone and um, just these really cool, amazing artists, you know. And so I found myself singing along and getting to be really familiar with all those songs, even as a little kid. So and then it kind of graduated to being asked to sing at our parents' cocktail parties. And then uh, it it moved on to me doing a version of... uh, the Hawaiian wedding song in the voice of Ethel Merman. So you can imagine this little, this little 10 year old, you know, going, this is the mall, man, you know? So <laughs> uh, that's just, and then I would get a response, you know, from the cocktail party people. And like, when you get that response from people, I think that's highly addictive. And that made me want to just push and push and push. And then, of course, when I saw the Beatles, it was all over. And which show was that? Would that have been up in the the Great Northwest, right? Yeah, I went and saw them in 1966 at the Seattle Coliseum on their last tour. It was like almost the night before their last show in San Francisco. And uh, uh, there were so many just ultimately cool things about it. Like George Harrison broke a string during Nowhere Man. Um Mal Evans brought the bass drum out on stage and the whole place came unglued, you know, just to see Mal because everyone already knew who Mal was, you know, and uh, John Lennon chewed gum the whole time on stage and they were wearing the dark green forest green suits and just all kinds of super cool stuff like that, that just made it like, how do you come down from something like that? Well, I don't think you do. So what was it that that uh, that attracted you to the Beatles? You you obviously heard them long before that 66 show. Do you remember the first time uh, they came into your orbit? Yes, I was 12 years old and uh, my older sister bought the Meet the Beatles album. And uh, I don't think she realized that what it was going to do to me as a, as a 12-year-old. And I think that the... That uh, Brian Epstein and the band had very um, shrewdly tailored their whole appeal to girls my age, you know, and um, it just hit me right where I lived. And the girls at school who were my age were just like everyone was knocked out. And at that moment, you had to choose between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and whichever one you chose dictated what kind of girl you were. If you chose the Rolling Stones, you were more of like a loose, easy party girl of ill repute. And then if you chose the Beatles, you were like a good girl. You were t- <laughs> you were just like way cooler <laughs> and way more legitimate, you know. And <laughs> So yeah, 
that that uh, their music and their their first album was all tied up in in school cliques and uh, you know trying to figure out who you who you are when you're twelve and thirteen. What might have happened if you'd been a Stones girl? God, I don't know. I think I would have ended up pregnant <laughs> at age fourteen or something, and uh, or gone on heroin or something like that, or you know. I'm so glad you made the other choice. Oh my gosh. So I try to explain this to my students. I teach a Beatles class uh, on the Jersey shore at Monmouth university. And I try to help them understand how different the experience was. I mean, the, the experience of loving music is always similar. You hear something and it, it arrests you and you just have to have, have to have more of it, Mm -hmm. but the different, um, environment in which the Beatles came along. Why were they exciting to your ears? What, what made their sound? You, you just mentioned Ryan Epstein and, and how he had carefully tailored the act. What was it that, that set your ears ablaze? Well, I think um, to a large degree, it was their Englishness uh, because what was going on right before they came out was, the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean and like Fabian and people like that who are all American and just sort of like these these preppy boys. Uh, and there was this sort of Leslie Gore, um, pure blonde American girl thing about it that was not appealing at all to the rest of us girls who were who weren't perfect, you know, like that. And we were looking for something way more exotic. And so here come these four really super cute guys from Liverpool with these crazy accents. And then, of course, Hard Day's Night comes along where you get to see them being like having cups of tea and smoking ciggies and, (laughs) you know, being four lads with their camaraderie and their humor. And that was just that was just it. I mean, that was just so appealing like everyone had to learn, all the girls had to learn how to speak with a Liverpool accent. You you looked in books to find out what certain words meant, like if you're going to have a Barney, can I hold your coat? Stuff like that. You had to figure out what that meant. And then it was so cool when <laughs> you figured it out, you know. And like we used to smoke these little cigarettes that were actually just pieces of white paper rolled up and scotch taped. So it would look cool but it wasn't a real cigarette, but we had to look that cool and be art students wearing turtlenecks like them. (laughs) And then, right. You've got this band that, um, that you've experienced with meet the Beatles and a hard day's night. And then it's rubber soul and revolver. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. What was it like to experience that in real time? Well, Rubber Soul was, looking back on it, was the first little whispers of their their renaissance. And I think that by the time that came out, I was probably, what, 15? Something. something. Yeah, I was probably like uh, 14. And um, so the, the breezes of puberty were blowing really strong. And we started feeling that the Beatles were sexy. And then um, some of the songs were 
just to die for, like Michelle and, and uh, just so powerful. And they reached in and stirred up a young girl's soul, really. Um, and, of course, Revolver was wide open renaissance for them. Songs like For No One and um, Tomorrow Never Knows, especially that one, Tomorrow Never Knows, just completely blew our heads open. And that's when, you know, people might start, might have started to smoke a little pot because the Beatles were talking about it, right? So if they went and smoked pot with Bob Dylan, then we all had to find out what that was. So, so in essence, I guess we were taking <laughs> lessons and we were taking direction from the Beatles about things we could add to our lives. And then not too long after that, it was LSD. That's right. You got Sgt. Pepper and then, of course, the White Album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, every album was a progression and it was a milestone. Um, I just remember hearing when the White Album was going to be played on the radio, top to bottom. And, you know, it's a, a double album, so it's, it's a good, uh, I don't know, two hours long or hour and 45 minutes long or something, if you listen to the whole thing. And uh, it was on the radio. So back in those days, we didn't have computers or anything like that. We had to go sit in the car and run the engine and listen to the White Album as it debuted, which was really cool. We took a little bit of pot out there <laughs> and, you know, had a couple of tokes in the car, told our parents we were just going to go down and get a burger or something. And we just went and parked somewhere and toked up and listened to the White Album on the radio. A real milestone. <laughs> yeah, that's in, in a way, you were doing research, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, because you needed to take these things into your life, both vocabulary-wise, and you needed to be able to discuss each of these albums in detail, uh, discuss it and re-listen and rediscuss it with your friends, and um, it was like literature. We'll be back with more about the literature of the Beatles with Ann Wilson after these messages. We're back with more from Ann Wilson. When was Heart formed exactly? How would we date that? Well, Heart was formed in 1968, before I was in it, by Steve Fossen and Roger Fisher and some other guys. And I didn't join until 1972. So I guess you could say that in 73 was when Heart first became the beginnings of what you see now, you know. And did you and Nancy come along then at the same time and, and join the band? No, Nancy didn't join until 76. But um, so I was the sole um, woman in the band for a bu for some years before she joined. You know, my, my students, um, especially the women, obviously – uh, are very interested in in that period in rock history because that really was the case, right? Where it was so heavily male-dominated in, I guess, lots of different aspects, right? In front of the microphone and behind. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what, what was that like? If I were to get to them, what, what would I tell them? <laughs> well, you know, I uh, my experience was was pretty naive because, you know, I was a Beatle fan 
and I considered myself just the foremost authority on everything English. And um, I went into my own band with that kind of confidence and just like with just natural hair, natural clothes, all that kind of stuff. And I remember at this one point, our booking agent, like in Vancouver, BC, this probably was in 1975, our booking agent coming up to me at a gig and saying, God, you have got to get some makeup on. You've got to fix your hair. You know, you like you're in the entertainment business now. You have to, you know, smarten up a little bit. And uh, I hadn't even considered that until then because I, uh, in my heart, I didn't feel like a woman. I felt like, I felt androgynous. I just felt, you know, I could be a girl. I could be Paul McCartney. I could be John Lennon. Whoever I wanted to be, I could be. I didn't consider jumping into a, a gender role, um, a gender role where you have to wear makeup and have a hairdo and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I guess <laughs> what you could tell your female students is that um, the Beatles opened up a whole world for girls that was never opened before. And that was their, their intelligence and their imagination. And uh, you heard guys singing about singing to women and about women. Like for instance, John Lennon singing, she's not a girl who misses much. She's well acquainted to uh, the hand of the, the velvet hand like a lizard on a window pane. I mean, that kind of stuff is way, way, way past Jan and Dean or the Beach Boys. And it gave girls another... It, it's still... Yeah. <laughs> right. And it, uh, it totally gave women another periscope to see their own gender from. Right. And it, that's, such a, I, uh, that's such an amazing song. I spend a lot of time in class on happiness as a warm gun. Oh, it's the yeah. centerpiece. Yes. Certainly of the White Album and maybe of something larger. And, and, and it's, he was so good at that, right? It was very much like the beginning of uh, Norwegian Wood. You know, I once had a girl, or should I say she once had me. Yes. The idea of having... Functioning on on multiple levels, right? Hoodwinking somebody, having them sexually, etc. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the one you just decided that you just cited, where missing could be several things, right? It could be um, missing somebody fondly. It could be um, catching every detail, right? Yeah. Having an insightful mind, right? And that's how I took it. Yeah, it never grows old, does it? No, it, it doesn't. And and. Like right along with that came the realization that John had hooked up with this extremely intelligent woman who was an artist in her own right. And that gave a whole, the whole idea of equality of the genders a new meaning. And especially women of my, my age, I graduated from high school in 1968. And so the, which is the same year of like Gloria Steinem and Hillary Clinton and that type of that ilk of women <laughs> all graduated, graduated from high school at the same time. And they had new ideas. They had Renaissance ideas about what women could do and be. Um, and I credit the Beatles with a lot of that, especially John. And it, it really is amazing when you look back at that music, as you said before, 
they are speaking self-consciously directly to women. One of the most brilliant parts of, of the whole story. I was listening uh, to switch gears for a moment. I was listening to Dreamboat Annie this morning. And um, what, a, what an incredible record. I'm, I was really struck, you know, listening to a, a wonderful cut like uh, that you just blow away in all the best ways, uh, crazy on you, right? And listening to that song, you guys, did, did you go into the studio really knowing what you wanted to do? No way. No way. That was the first time I'd ever been <laughs> really in a studio with a producer do, like uh, recording a song that we'd written. <laughs> like, the, like I wrote all the words to Crazy on You and here I am behind a big mic in, in a big studio singing my own words. It was the first time that had ever happened. And um uh, yeah, I think Dreamboat Annie is an example uh, uh, of a record whose concept we had come to understand through the Beatles, which was you can have all kinds of songs on one record. You don't have to uh, find the one thing you do and just lay into it for a whole record. You can go all kinds of places, and it's kind of like a like a variety show. <laughs> That's what we tried to do with Dreamboat Annie, too. Well, it, it works stupendously because you're in all these different worlds. There's the world of the song Dreamboat Annie, right, which is very specific about this this um, this character, Crazy on You, and then Magic Man, mm -hmm. which uh, is almost a fantastical sort of netherworld, I guess one could say. Mm -hmm. It's really powerful stuff. But <laughs> what I really was struck me about listening to the album this morning was I kept thinking to myself, these guys knew they had arrived. It really sounds like you're in deep control. And, and I guess that maybe that was the illusion. You fake it till you make it. Yeah, well, I give a lot of credit for uh, that feeling of being in control to our producer, Mike Flicker, because he knew what it could be. He totally believed in us, and he saw our potential. And he pretty much, like, I'll never forget being behind the mic singing Crazy on You, because uh, that was the first time I'd hit some of those notes, and he was just saying all the right things so that I felt relaxed enough just to go for it, you know. And, um, yeah, I think that, that we, uh, we added like the dreamboat any reprise and everything where it comes back a couple of times to that theme. So it all gets tied together. And, um, that was direct beetle influence right there. Now I know this is everything fab four, but, um, there is too, right? Some Led Zeppelin back there with with your amazing vocal stylings, right? Somewhere in there is you. You have a love of Led Zeppelin, I gotta believe. Yeah, and listening to Robert Plant sing, especially like on the uh, White Album, or no, excuse me, on the on Zeppelin Four, uh, he wasn't afraid to just go up and moan in his high register, you know, and it just just sounded so Janis Joplin-y and, and there was something of the blues in there that I really liked. And so, yeah, they definitely inspired me to go up and wail like that. Well, it's more than wailing. Your, your modulation on something like on rock, on rock and roll, right? When you sing that tune is uh, that's the standard for me, you know, with all due respect to Led Zeppelin, your control on that is really something. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, it's just beautiful stuff. It, uh, 
I, I still, when I play that, uh, I think that's what from greatest hits live, yeah. I feel the hairs on the back of my neck go up. Um, I mean, that's the kind of song, let me tell you, Anne, that will get a young person to skip econ and go buy tickets. Yeah. Oh my God. Skipping econ. No. I, <laughs> I, uh, full confession. I may have had to take econ more than once. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think that anybody would to get it, to start getting it, you know. <laughs> That's right. So now your Beatles love manifested itself, right, in a pretty interesting way at the concert for George. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my progression of Beatle loving started with Paul, moved through John, and ended up on George. And um, so when I was asked to be at that concert, there were only two songs that I wanted to do, and one of them was Beware of Darkness, which I think is almost one of George's best songs, you know. That and Something and Piggies and a few others, you know, just they just really show how evolved George was. So, yeah, that was a real honor to be at that show. What was it about Be- Beware of Darkness? What attracts you to that song? I think the way he says, beware of Maya. There's something in the way he sounds when he says that phrase that just, I took a picture of it in my soul and I just went, yeah. And just the the chord progression, you know, and it's, it's very, it's very emotional and powerful. The chords he uses. Um, And also it was right at that time that I met and, became friends with Olivia Harrison and and uh, Danny. And they were just, they were so sweet. They just loved the fact that I did that song. I guess the other people had kind of sh- uh, shied away from it because it wasn't happy. Um, so it meant a lot to them that I would go up and do that song. It was just so satisfying to me. I'm just thrilled at your commentary just now about Maya, which of course is what almost his central philosophy about avoiding illusions in life, I guess that's where within you, without you comes from. And while my guitar gently do, and now with beware of darkness, beware of the darkness that comes when we fall for those illusions that your performance is magnificent on it, but especially at the end when he starts to uh, in the original, of course, song from all things must pass when he starts to outline all the bad things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That when, when you embrace Maya, you know, you, you really modulate that darkness. Yeah. Fantastically. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah. I mean, the words to that song are, are nothing short of brilliant when he talks about um, uh, the, uh, the unaware people just, kind of going through their lives with no awareness. Uh, 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 Each unconscious sufferer wanders aimlessly. Those are just power packed, simple words, you know, that just say his whole message. And that whole thing, uh, while we weeping Atlas cedars just want to grow and grow. He was a gardener. And so here's, here's his commentary on nature. Just, being nature and being pure while all this human stuff is going on that's really dark and 
Maya, you know. I thought that was really brilliant and sweet. Well, speaking about commenting on on human nature, is that what we have with uh, with the new song "Greed"? Oh yes, yes indeed. That's that's exactly what I meant by that. It's 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 just everywhere. It's in on every level of our endeavor. It seems right now, even the war over in Europe is an extreme example of super greed. And I've been talking to a lot of people over there recently and asking them all the same question. What's he trying to do? What's the whole purpose of this war? And none of them know. Like even over in Sweden, in Germany, in Spain, nobody understands why. And um, the only thing I can come up with is greed, selfishness. Yeah, somewhere in there you know is money and power, right? Oh, totally. Yeah, and that's the, you know, the the seven deadly sins are all involved, I would think. I wish John was here to to get mad and say some things. I wish for that every day. That's one of those uh, those wounds that we'll never heal from, right? Do you remember when you got that, that awful news? Yeah, yeah, it was just, uh, I was coming back, I'd just come back from a restaurant dinner with some friends, and I got home, and one of the people that I'd had dinner with called me up and went, turn on the TV, and there it was, you know. And at first, it was impossible to believe. I just felt like, no, this is some kind of publicity stunt, or because John and Yoko at that point were famous for doing all kinds of things that were shocking and um, to try and sell peace as if it were soap and I, and, and gun violence and all kinds of stuff like that. And, and uh, so it took me a long time to really believe it. But by the morning after, which I hadn't slept all night, um, I, I started to believe it. It was horrible. I think that that, that knocked me off my feet for months. I guess the only way perhaps to try to, to make it in this complicated contemporary world is to have, and I love your title, a fierce bliss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so rare now. I don't take bliss and happiness for granted anymore. Now, whenever it comes, you know, I just go like, hallelujah, you know, and feel it all the way down to the ground. is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens, in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story.